0: It's Tuesday, April 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Get ready for congestion pricing. New York City is set to become the first big city in the country to charge vehicles a fee for driving on its most congested streets in a hope to ease gridlock and raise money for public transit. It's a complicated issue in a high-profile area, and other cities will be watching as they mull over implementing similar systems. Paul Berger, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to discuss what we know about the New York plan. Next, we have a White House whistleblower, and she is calling out the process in which security clearances were being approved. Trisha Newbold, a White House security advisor for 18 years, has said that at least 25 officials were granted clearances after initially being denied. Some of the disqualifying issues involve foreign influence, conflicts of interest, financial problems, and more. Andrew Desiderio, reporter for Politico, joins us to talk about the latest whistleblower allegations. Finally, the impossible is happening at Burger King. 59 locations in the St. Louis area are testing out the Impossible Whopper, made with a vegan patty produced by startup Impossible Foods. John Porter, reporter at The Verge, joins us to discuss Burger King's latest offering. News without the noise. Let's dive in. You need a viable functioning mass transit system so people get out of their cars and feel comfortable taking the mass transit system. Joining us now is Paul Berger, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. So New York City is set to become the first big city in the country to put in place some congestion pricing where they're going to charge vehicles entering some of the most congested streets in a hope to reduce some of the gridlock and raise money for public transportation systems. What do we know about this New York test? Because when a big city like this does something like that, other cities take note for when they want to implement some type of similar system in their own hometown.
1: We know the exact area that they're going to put their fee on. We don't know exactly how much it's going to be, but we know that a previous panel that looked at this suggested somewhere in the region of $11.50 for a car to enter the zone. We don't know what the wow. charge is going to end up. Uh, another panel is going to look at that, but the aim is to raise a billion dollars in revenue a year that can be used to basically borrow money that can then be invested in the mainly in the subway system, but also
0: in the buses and commuter rail. $11.50 for cars, I think it was $25.30 for trucks. That seems like a big price hike, right? But it's kind of that delicate balance. If you charge drivers too little, you'll make a little bit money, but you'll still have traffic jams because everybody's still going to be there. Charge too much, and then you risk turning off too many drivers. I know that the congestion notion of congestion pricing has been around for a while. There's a lot of other cities in the world that do have this type of system right now
1: in new york that 1150 that was kind of a set fee that they were talking about but in the legislation that they passed in new york at the weekend what they said was they wanted to have what's called variable pricing so we don't know exactly what it will look like you know maybe it will be at certain times of the day it will cost more to come into manhattan than other times of the day perhaps they will actually have a way i mean the ideal scenario is they would have a way of actually measuring the amount of traffic going into the city and how congested the area is so that they can charge more at specific congested times. But in other cities in the world where they've tried this, like in London, in the first year, they saw a massive reduction in congestion. I think travel speeds increased by something like 30%, and they saw uh, something in the region of an 11% shift in people from using their cars to using mass transit, walking, or biking.
0: They've done studies on how fast the cars are going in areas like this, and New York City had the slowest downtown business district speed. At nine miles an hour, anybody that has been to the area knows how slow it is to get through that main part of the city right there, like in Midtown. What's going on in New York specifically with the traffic? I I mean, I know there's a lot of construction. There's a lot of cars just park wherever they want to, deliveries. There's a ton of ride-sharing cars between Uber and Lyft now. They're all contributing to the traffic there, but what's the real problem? And and specifically on the ride-sharing cars, are they going to be subject to this charge as well?
1: Nine miles an hour actually would be a dream speed to move through Manhattan at these days. Right. That was like an average that was given out by INRIX, this analytics firm but New York City itself says that in some parts of Manhattan, the speed is actually somewhere closer to about five miles an hour. Wow. Some buses, it's actually quicker to walk across the city than it is to take the bus. So the speeds here are, are pretty terrible. And as you point out, you know, there are a lot of different reasons for that, like construction, even even the addition of bike lanes basically takes away road space, which make can tend to make the roads more congested. But yeah, the ride-hailing cars, Uber and Lyft, have just completely swamped the city. So... In the last five years, we've gone from none of those cars to about 80,000 of those cars. And they've been mainly concentrated in the central business district, which is where the congestion zone is going to be. One of the big criticisms of Uber and Lyft, although they have increased availability and accessibility of taxis, those cars spend a huge portion of their time circling empty waiting for rides. And those empty cars are obviously contributing to congestion. As far as the fee goes, I don't believe that they're going to be subject to the congestion fee that we're currently talking about but they are already paying a fee that was passed in the state budget last year and so every uber and lyft trip is subject to a two dollar and seventy five cent charge and that's any trip that actually touches a congestion zone that's even bigger than the one we're talking about. Yellow taxis are also paying extra. They're paying $2.50. And if you take a pool ride where you share it with a, with a stranger, that's $0.75 cents per trip. In New York, there is a, a massive need to fix the subway. New Yorkers are extremely proud of the subway. I think a lot of people around the country are kind of fascinated by the subway. And in the last few years, it's just become... Gaia, the delays, the disruptions have been pretty constant and consistent, and people have had enough. I think they look around the world at Paris, London, and other cities, and they say, Why can't we have a, a modern system that's just way more reliable? The MTA, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority that runs the subway, basically has said it's going to cost us $40 billion to fix the subway. The governor and state legislators have decided that the best way of funding that fix is congestion pricing, which basically A, funds mass transit, but B, uh, hopefully reduces congestion in the city, so you kind of win on both ends. In other cities, they don't have an enormous century-old mass transit system that's in dire need of funds, but they do have, say, in L.A., like a, a modern transit system that perhaps needs expansion. And so congestion pricing is, I guess, in many ways, a good fix on all sides. You get to hopefully reduce pollution, get to address climate change and you get to help people get where they're going faster and at the same time for the other people who depend on mass transit they get more reliable more frequent service
0: paul berger reporter for the wall street journal thank you very much for joining us
1: thank you
2: not going to comment on uh, security clearances. That's the policy of the White House, and that continues to be the policy of the White House.
0: Joining us now is Andrew Desiderio congressional reporter for Politico. We're going to be talking about the new White House whistleblower that we have. It is Trisha Newbold. She is a White House security advisor for 18 years. And she told the House Oversight and Reform Committee that there were 25 denials for security clearance applications that were overridden by the Trump administration. She goes into all sorts of reasonings for why she came forward with this. Among them, she said she wanted to restore the integrity of the office there. What do we know about Trisha Newbold and what she's saying happened in the White House there?
2: So she's worked at the White House for almost two decades now under Republican and Democratic administrations handling security clearances. This is basically an adjudication of who can handle top secret classified information in our government. And oftentimes, as they go through these screenings, they find problematic aspects of individuals' path that might preclude them from viewing classified information or especially viewing classified information while you are in the vicinity of the President of the United States. So her job is super important, and she's been doing it for almost two decades. What she specifically alleging is that there were many instances in which intelligence officials had recommended that certain individuals, including some top officials close to the president, not get top secret security clearances because of those issues in their respective past. But what she found was that her supervisor at the time, this guy named Carl Klein, who was the director of the White House personnel security office, was essentially overriding those recommendations and giving those individuals full-blown security clearances anyway. And she felt that despite all of her complaints about the matter internally at the White House, nothing was really getting resolved or changing. So she felt like coming to Congress was her last avenue.
0: According to Ms. Newbold, uh, there was a range of issues that were disqualifying for some of these people. Foreign influence, conflicts of interest concerning personal conduct, financial problems. I think they even said drug use and criminal conduct. So there's a, a, a ton of different things. And over the course of 25 people, you know, these don't apply to everybody. There was a case where she wrote, a for her and some colleagues wrote a 14-page memo about why they were going to deny the security clearance for somebody, a particular person and that still got overrated.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. There were numerous other examples in there too, along the same lines, but the bottom line was that she thought that there was undue influence within somewhere at the White House. We do know that it's been reported in the past that the president of the United States had directed his chief of staff to grant Jared Kushner, his son-in-law and senior advisor, a full security clearance, even though there were issues in his background concerning foreign contacts and other matters that were not initially disclosed. The president has not necessarily confirmed nor denied that story, but it's been reported pretty widely. And that's part of what intensified the House Oversight Committee's investigation into this issue. Uh, It's a super important one. Like I said, it's very rare for someone who has these types of issues in their past have their security clearance overridden, essentially. Uh, But the President of the United States does have the power to do that unilaterally. But what Trisha Newbold was saying was that there should at least be some checks and balances in place. And that's what she felt like her role was. And she felt that she wasn't able to live up to that given the circumstances.
0: House Oversight and Reform Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings has gotten some blowback, or at least uh, met some resistance from the White House in documents that they've been requesting. So it hasn't gone very smoothly for them on this front yet.
2: No, it hasn't. Uh, the White House has been routinely refusing to turn over documents related to the security clearances of specific individuals, citing, of course, privacy concerns and other issues. But the committee has maintained that it's, it's within Congress's right to uh, essentially compel the White House to turn over many of these documents. And as I mentioned, the investigation has been intensifying lately. It's gotten pretty heated in terms of the the partisan sparring between the White House and Democrats here on Capitol Hill. But it's certainly something that Democrats believe is a top priority for them as they continue to investigate all aspects of the Trump administration.
0: Yeah, and they're even going to start authorizing subpoenas if they have to now. I mean, that just kind of shows how serious they're getting there and how close they want to get to this. They have a list of people whose security clearances they do want to probe. Ivanka, Jared Kushner. John Bolton, Michael Flynn, Rob Porter. So a bunch of people that they're looking into. And this is going to be the ongoing fight for that uh, committee right now.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I will mention, you, know, you since you mentioned subpoena, the committee is actually going to vote to subpoena for Carl Klein, who I mentioned earlier, used to serve as the White House personnel security director. He now works at the Pentagon, but the White House has refused to make him available for a deposition. So that's why the committee feels like they need to issue the subpoena. It will be issued in all likelihood. It'll be a party line vote, obviously. But the committee wants to talk to Mr. Klein because of many of the allegations laid out by Trisha Newbold and they and the committee also said that they were able to corroborate many of Trisha Newbold's claims. They didn't get specific about who else they talked to, but they said that they talked to other officials within the Trump administration in order to corroborate many of those claims through witness interviews, documents and the like.
0: Andrew Desiderio, Congressional reporter for Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's not beef. That's impossible. It tasted just like a Whopper should taste. Why? A patty with zero milligrams of cholesterol, 17 grams of protein, 100% Whopper, and 0% beef. We know it's impossible to believe. The Impossible Whopper, only at Burger King in St. Louis. Joining us now is John Porter, reporter for The Verge. Meat alternatives in fast food places are starting to expand their choices. The latest one that we heard about is Burger King is going to be starting to sell a version of the Impossible Burger. It's going to be their Impossible Whopper. Not only Burger King, but Red Robin, which has a bunch of chains on the West Coast, they're going to also be selling the Impossible Burger at their restaurants. But tell us about Burger King and its decision to start selling this Impossible Whopper.
3: For now, it sounds like they're kind of trialing it. They So far, they've announced they're going to be selling it across 59 locations in the St. Louis, Missouri area. But they've kind of indicated that if this goes well, then they would be willing to consider rolling it out kind of nationwide in the U.S., which would be like over 7,000 locations. So it, yeah. it's really the biggest chain so far that's kind of committed to like experimenting
0: with, with kind of meat free burgers, really. The Impossible Burger already had it was sort of a trial kind of if you want to call it, at White Castle. White Castle already started selling slider versions of the Impossible Burger, and they said that they met sales quotas pretty early on, and there was a lot of enthusiasm for it there. So I can't imagine it failing completely in St. Louis, which, as you said, would lead to them being in over 7,200 locations in Burger Kings if everything goes well. At this point, it's definitely a novelty.
3: I have definitely gone to restaurants because I know that they serve a meat-free burger and I'll go there and I'll like on purpose order the meat-free burger. Yeah. But this coming to Burger King, Burger King's the kind of place, they're just everywhere. It's the kind of place you could accidentally find yourself at. So it will be really interesting to see if the kind of person that wants to go to Burger King to get a burger, who hasn't specifically chosen a restaurant to try out a specific recipe, if they will go for the meat-free option. I think it's it will be a really interesting test to see if it kind of resonates with a wider audience,
0: really. The two main companies that are kind of battling it out right now are Impossible Foods, which is going to be featured at Burger King. And then Beyond Meat is another company. Carl's Jr. had their trial at this. I think it started in January where they put the Beyond Meat burger in their famous star. Now, that one I had, and it was pretty delicious. I think I can still recognize meat if I was given a meat (laughs) burger. But it's funny, some of the executives from Burger King are saying, you know, in our initial trials, some of our customers and even our employees can't. Tell the difference, and I don't know. That could be PR spin, but that's kind of where they're going at right now.
3: I can believe it, though.
0: Personally, I think a lot of it comes
3: down to how many condiments and stuff you you have in the burger. I agree. So I tried out the Impossible Burger at a place called Fat Burger and Buffalo's Express last time I was in LA. Honestly, I thought it was delicious, but there was there was a lot of sauce in there. There are a lot of like other flavorings, gherkins, that sort of stuff. So really. Impossible Burger, they say that when they test it, they taste they test it both naked and then also like fully loaded in a burger to kind of try and get a decent idea of, of how it will taste in different situations. I couldn't tell the difference. I don't know if that's just my specific palate, but yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting.
0: One of the interesting things at Burger King, they said they're still going to top it with mayonnaise. So vegans would not be able to enjoy it just outright, they'd probably have to ask for it without. So what is the Impossible Foods Burger made out of? It's based out of heme. It comes from some soybean roots or something.
3: It's soy-based. It's made from kind of like the roots of a soybean plant and then apparently mass-produced using yeast. And this kind of changed in January where they introduced the second version of, the, of their Impossible Burger. And the emphasis there, like this version of the burger is apparently a lot healthier. Burger King have kind of said that it has 15% less fat than a standard Whopper. It's got apparently 90% less cholesterol. And And then you'd also hope that there are kind of flavor enhancements and stuff going on in there as well. And then in addition to soy, they've kind of, they've got other ingredients to kind of give more of the texture of a burger, which I think is the more important thing when you've got lots of condiments and
0: stuff going on. It's kind of like that's hiding the taste of the burger. Burger King, obviously they've had like this really close relationship with beef. And for a long time, all their Whopper wrappers said 100% beef, no filler. So now the new wrapper is going to say 100% Whopper, zero percent beef but this is kind of the trend all a lot of the fast foods are looking for other options to provide for their customers
3: yeah, it's like there are a few advantages that going meat-free has, you know, it's it's healthier. There's the ethical argument that should we be eating so many animals? I think for me, though, the biggest argument for it, it is just the environmental one, like the sheer amount of greenhouse gases that are produced just through meat and animal agriculture. It's astonishing. It's, it's apparently between like 14 and 18 percent of greenhouse gases. Apparently, right. a really significant part of that, literally cow farts, <laughs> yeah. which apparently contribute methane, yeah. almost like 4 percent. To greenhouse gas emissions. So <laughs> it is an environmental problem. And we can have lots of conversations about moving to electric cars and more uh Environmentally friendly forms of energy production, but there are other things we can do as well. And the way we eat does contribute to them. And so, if you can go into a, a mass market burger place and if you can buy a meat-free burger, I think that's a great thing. Although one thing we haven't talked about so far is price. I think Burger King have said that the Impossible Whopper is going to cost about a dollar more than the existing Whopper. Maybe that that the novelty aspect of it will encourage people to to pay more. But that will be really interesting to see if it's if it's not a like for like if it If you're actually having to make that
0: choice to pay a little bit more, will that discourage people? I've got no idea. Right. One interesting note that I thought in the whole testing phase of this is that Impossible Foods did ship one of Burger King's flame broiling machines overnight to its headquarters so that they can ensure that the patty wouldn't break apart in mass production and it really has that feel and taste of the the regular Whoppers at Burger King so obviously the Impossible Burgers it's
3: been around for a few years now it's been sold in, in various different restaurants you can imagine the kind of places that would go out of their way to to buy in a load of like Impossible Burger patties are probably going to be the kinds of places where they're going to take a lot of care over how they cook them so another it'll be a big test uh, for the Impossible Burger is whether they can mass produce them in Burger Kings and whether they'll still hold up with the way Those guys kind of produce like mountains and mountains of food every single day. Produce it really quickly. It's a very difficult environment for food to be in if if it's if it's low quality. So yeah, big test for impossible. John Porter,
0: reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.